Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to the Webby Podcast, where we share the stories of the internet in more than five-word speeches. The internet must be stopped. Shatner, eat your heart out. We'll remember this forever. Remember. It's all just prelude. Here's your host, Webby's Executive Director, David Michelle Davies. Hey, welcome back. We have been hard at work on season two of the Webby podcast. But in the meantime, we wanted to send out this episode a little early. Call it a preseason bonus. Webby Lifetime Achievement winner and Wired Magazine co-founder Louis Rosetto, who's my guest for this episode, just launched a Kickstarter campaign for his new book, Change is Good. And we wanted to make sure you heard about it. The campaign is already well over its goal, but there is still time for you to get in early and reserve your copy of the book which brings to life the vibrant tech scene of San Francisco in the 90s, exactly where Wired got its start. The book's also an impressive feat of technology in itself. Using a new post-digital printing process, it combines the latest advances in digital typography with an unparalleled quality of vintage letterpress. All you print nerds out there are going to love this. So listen in to learn more about the project and, most importantly, the story of how Wired became the publication of record for a world in transition. It's amazing how none of it was really predictable, um, and I suppose that's true for a lot of people, but uh, I'm sure my parents thought there'd be a career and that I'd have some obvious arc, um, and uh, at the end I'd look like they did. Um, what did they do? My father was a, a mechanical engineer, and uh, he ended up in uh, engineering management. He worked for big uh, equipment manufacturer. I mean, equipment manufacturers that made real hardware. Mm. And in the beginning, it was linotypes. Um, in the end, it was big machinery that made boxes and other stuff. So, and he was uh, he was responsible for the engineering groups of, of companies. So he managed people. Okay, so there, you had some early exposure to, to tech and engineering. Did you think it was interesting and cool when you were young, or was it just like something your dad did? And I had, I could, you know, I was taken in and shown these big machines, and um, I, frankly, some of them look scary. I don't know if you don't remember what a linotype or even have any idea what a linotype is, but it's a machine that um, collects brass matrices coming out of a big um, sort of funnel, and then. Uh, with a guy sitting at a typewriter that's five times the size of a normal typewriter with keys the size of tops of Coke cans. And he's there pressing the, the type to create a line for a newspaper or a book or whatever. And then he's got a pile of molten lead next to him that then fills up the matrices and creates a line of type, which then is then line of type, mm. which then is uh, mounted with other lines until they become a form. And then that's taken and printed with. So to go to see these things, it's got like big things banging and swiveling and other things clanking and 
flowing and pots of uh, lead <laughs> boiling away wow. off to the side and a guy clanging away on this on this oversized keyboard. And what would eventually get printed with that or like with the results of that well, work? What would anything, newspapers, magazines? We'll come back to that because there's, there's sort of a bookend to this story in a way. Um, in the end, the, the, the lead um, lines would be formed into a, a form of other, other lines. They'd be locked down and then that, that would be put – that thing would be put on a print, on a press. And the press and, the, and those lines of type would be inked and the, the type would press onto paper and leave an impression. So um, this was for books – but mostly the type of, of linotypes he was working with and the companies that they were working for were big uh, newspapers. Um, so I'm just pointing out that – I'm sure other people know this. I didn't realize this. I just want to point out that the co-founder of Wire Magazine's father made technology that helped print newspapers and magazines and books. Yeah. It's, and yeah. Uh, he, did, he did other cool <laughs> – uh, later on I found out he did, did other cool things too. So that's the way it used to be done from the time Otmar Mergenthaler uh, invented the linotype at the end of the 19th century until the middle of the 20th century. And at which point my father was involved in the development of uh, photo typesetting, which basically ended up obsoleting and replacing this former method of, um, of typography um, into a very clean and fast and ultimately computerized and ultimately digitized meth method of of printing, um, and he was at the, he was at the cusp. He was on the he was part of the last. He made the last computer-driven linotype, and he also made among the first commercial photo typesetting machines. Um, and I suppose if you're looking for some kind of a parallel, um, that's kind of what part of my life has been is watching one era turn into another. Um, in revolutions happening and technology driving that change. Yeah, and he, I mean, and I read before you started Wire, the job you had right before was you were publishing a magazine that was following, that was covering the way that languages were processed electronically. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's how I got exposed to the digital revolution. Yeah. Basically, I was in the Netherlands. I was an expatriate. I'd been hired by a company that uh, wanted me to write technical manuals for the computer industry. And then my job got eliminated, but they couldn't fire me because it's Europe. So they repurposed me into being an editor for a magazine that they invented in order to sell software products that they had been developing. And they wanted to call it language technology. And I didn't know, I didn't know about either of them. So I spent a lot of time just going out and discovering what was going on in this field. Um, and this was the mid-80s, and it was the moment when the PC revolution was biting, when global networks were being, private networks were being established, um, and new technologies were being introduced for uh, networking, the manipulation of words, data, uh, data storage, CD-ROM, a whole bunch of stuff, the laser printer. Yeah. For cons um, like for regular people, that was sort of like the, the era of like the word processor really, right? That was pretty people much. People were starting to use pretty much. kind of computers but also just these these sort of machines where you would type instead of typing on a typewriter, type on a screen and eventually print on these dot matrix printers. And yeah, we came out – language technology came out two years after um, Jobs introduced the, the, right. the Apple Macintosh and – and then uh, it was also when IBM was doing their Charlie Chaplin PC things. And so PCs were starting to get popular. Um, it was 
it was a moment where I was, I was literally being paid to go around and discover what I didn't know about this submerged revolution that was going on because it certainly wasn't in the newspapers. They were still literally, the New York Times was still literally using linotypes to, mm. to, make, their, to make their newspapers. So they had very dubious ideas about what was really happening, much less the people writing about it. And so if you looked in the newspapers or you looked on, at Time magazine or watched television, you'd be hard-pressed to know out there in the world, there were all these engineers and technologists and finance people, companies that were building um, the infrastructure for a new world. And I was sent out in the middle of the 80s with this mandate to write about language and technology, which is on the forefront of, of human development in lots of ways because it has to do with the brain. And I was, I was going into labs and into companies and watching and seeing and talking to uh, people who were making this revolution. And it just struck me, why isn't it being covered? Because it's so incredibly important. These people are doing incredibly cool things and they're going to have an amazing impact on the world. And so that sort of set off alarm bells in my head. And so you sort of had this, in, like this, this eye view into this world that a lot of people, most of the world, didn't have specifically because of this sort of weird technical printing or publication, right? Yeah. I mean, weird in the best possible way, but it's yeah. pretty niche. And oh, absolutely. I was, I was given free reign to indulge. It was like a postgraduate course that I could design myself in the future of the, of the world. And, um, and I just went around and went to conferences and went to labs and companies and, and talked to people. And, and just my eyes kept getting bigger and bigger as to what I was seeing. And I was just more and more amazed that there wasn't anybody else talking about it yeah. and, uh, in any coherent way. I mean, because everybody was siloed in all of these different areas. They were, if you were working on CD-ROMs, you didn't know anything about AI or you didn't know anything about word processing or you didn't know about whatever. And so they were, all these different groups were kind of nerds. They were, they were nerds and they were socially like on the fringes of what was acceptable. And they didn't know what their fellow nerds were doing and none of them knew really the impact that they were going to have or they were even having at the time or they were going to have when they started to think about their things in a holistic way. Yeah. And the one thing that not among many things that sort of strikes me though is that so there's this view into this world of technology that's going on. It's not being uh, stories that aren't really being told. But this other thing that you guys did with Wire, which I think most people would agree with, is you connected this nerdy stuff to, to an idea that it was cool and to actual cool people and to people who were considered cool in pop culture. And you assemble a group of thinkers that, you know, as much as the technology are really, a, you know, I think a, who wrote for Wired is such a defining part of Wired. How did you meet the Stuart Brands and the Timothy Learys? Did that happen before you started the magazine? Was that was that part of your your formation of that the was, teams, or how did that come about? I met Tim Leary when he was going around uh, Europe in the 80s talking about technology. So I had, some, I had some connection to that. But when we came over, we were kind of this weird couple, Jane and I, um, that had been out of the country for a decade and came with kind of a fresh perspective on stuff. We're kind of undeterred by the fact that we didn't have access to tons of money. We didn't have access to any money or had any contacts. And we had this sort of naive, naive sense that, that, we, that we had something that, that needed to get out. And we weren't going to let anything stop us from doing that. And by just coming and 
waving this flag saying, here we are, we're going to do this. I think um, it ended up, it enabled us to, to talk to a lot of people. And it got other people excited about what we were doing. And other people wanted to help us in this because in lots of ways it served their interest. If they could get more exposure, if, they, if this thing could really happen, it wasn't clear that it could. But if it did happen, then uh, a lot of things would start to get um, attention and uh, a lot of agendas would start to get served. Somebody com compared it to being like the majorette in a parade. Like the majorette doesn't really lead the parade. It just happens to be in the front of it. And, and that's sort of what we came along and we ran up this flag. And the next thing we know, there was a lot of interest in what we were doing. A lot of people wanted to be part of it. Right. You know, I, I recently saw uh, uh, Nicholas Thompson, who's the new editor-in-chief mm -hmm. wire. I read that you guys had dinner and I, I would right. love to talk about that and just hear about how you think things are and wh what wired should do. But um, he posted, I think, your manifesto that you sent out to people like when you were waving that flag back in the day at the beginning. Um, and I read it and I got to tell you, when I was reading it, I at first I wasn't sure whether it was something you wrote two days ago or if it was something that had been written in the early 90s. It was very, and, I'm, and I think that's a great thing. It's really interesting. It's a timeless document in its way, but it, um, it had... It was in some ways championing the spirit of the things that I think people are still trying to champion today. Even some of the language around like digital revolution is still stuff that we, we hear about today. Well, that's – yeah, thank you. That was the launch editorial, which is – I hate editors' letters in magazines. I, and I, think, I just skip past them automatically. I but, think, and I think Nick like – did he – he's maybe eliminating the, the letter. I read something. But anyway. Well, we back, eliminated. Yeah. I just yeah. – that was the first and only one I ever did. Yeah. I, well, I think I did a second one for the second issue and that was – that was, and I may have done one later on when I was when I was leaving. But otherwise, for the you know 50 issues that I edited, there were only two mm. or three that made any difference. And that was one. It was the first one because I figured I needed to say something about what we were doing. And I'm heartened that you point out that the, that I was talking about a spirit because that's exactly what I'm trying to capture in this Kickstarter book that I'm doing called Change is Good that's about that moment in the 90s. It was a spirit of utopia that um, was abroad among these, these people who – came to San Francisco at that time to south the market or otherwise connected to the to this revolution that was um, was being mounted. Kevin Kelly talks about it as being the, the mission of the magazine and the mission of these people in general. The mission was to basically travel across the horizon to a new land west of California called the future yeah. and bring back fresh kill for the human race. Right. And that was like there was a spirit, the fire, there was a fire in the eyes of the people at that time to just overthrow the world and reform everything. Anything was, was, was fair game because everything needed it one way or another, whether it was the government, whether it was the business, whether it was how people educated themselves, how they did banking, whatever, whatever, whatever field you turn to, all of it was in need of, of revolution. And, and people came at the time to the revolution, not necessarily with the idea of making money per se. They came with the idea of, and it sounds cliched today, maybe because it's been so 
true, but to change the world sure. as they saw it. And they weren't going to subcontract that out to the government. They were just because they suddenly had these new tools, these computers and networks and other devices that enable them leverage the power that they had as individuals to make change directly. Yeah, I mean, I remember I came to that area a bit later, sort of like in the in the later '90s, and you know, I was very young at the time and, and probably ex- exceptionally naive. And uh, but that spirit was there, and there it was this very very utopian sort of feeling. I'm sure among more learned people and wiser people, they had already started to sense the dystopian potentials or think about those. I wasn't thinking about those as much, but I remember the excitement also was that none of these rules had been written, right? So. You know, today, changing the world for some of these people who are trying, who are in Silicon Valley or wherever it might be, can be sometimes a very small endeavor trying to write a piece of software that changes something very specific, which is great. I think part of the spirit of what this is all about. But at the time, you could change anything because there was nothing there, right? That was part of the excitement that – and so people took on these really big problems. They didn't necessarily have the technology to – do them all, and there wasn't all the users there yet, but... Yeah, there was um, this idealistic yeah. naivete uh, and an obsession, a compulsion to do something, and an adventure to be had. It was like Lewis and Clark being told by Jefferson to go and discover uh, what he just bought from France called the Louisiana Purchase, and, you know, start in Mississippi and go west without any maps until he reached the Pacific, until they reached the Pacific, and then report back on what they discovered. And in lots of ways, in lots of ways, the future can be thought of as something that's already there. You're not really inventing the future per se. You're actually just discovering what's where the where the rivers are, where the mountains are, where the bears are, right. forests, and and when you and you know the how, lights how are to, off and turning them on to some extent. Right. right. Yeah. It's so it's really like being that pioneer, and then after you've done that and 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 then shown what's what's there, what's possible, uh, then come the settlers, and for them it's not necessarily easy, but it's easier than if you don't if there are no maps and all that you see in front of you is insurmountable opportunity and danger around every corner. So you, you, you think there's something amazing to do, but it's totally scary because nobody's done it, and support for whatever you're doing could dry up at any moment. And there could be other you know, enemies coming along to, to subvert you along the way. And what, I mean, Wired always had, and, I, and you read in that manifesto, which I encourage people to, to read, uh, there was always a support of the idealism and the optimism, right? That was a that's a big part of the spirit of the magazine, which is championing the the great outcome and you know level in a level headed way. Lots of stories in Wired have looked at all the negative things, but do you think it's harder to do today? I mean, do you like I said, I was young. I was young. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. At the time, and so everything just looked amazing to me. And now today I look at everything, and there's definitely a, the glass is really half full, and there's a, there's also a perspective, especially this past year, that it looks a lot, you know, looks pretty half dem- empty as well. How do you how do you see that? Is it is it pretty similar to how it was then, or do you well, sort of just spare a bit more today about the future? We um, ran a outdoor campaign when we launched the magazine, and um, we had buses running up Madison Avenue down Broadway uh, with big posters on the side that said "Wired Mouthpiece of the Digital Revolution." So we didn't think of ourselves as simply reporters. We thought of ourselves as advocates. And then we also thought of ourselves as pioneers as well because we launched Hotwired and that was the first web company that had Fortune 500 advertising and original content made specifically for the web. And that was the opening gun to all the web stuff that happened after that. We we bought this idea completely and we tried to help shape it uh, to go to at least – appreciate certain things. One was the power of the people that were doing it. One was the opportunity that was, that was out there. Um, and, and then uh, finally, that we could do it ourselves. We didn't have to subcontract that out. And if you go back to, the, to that time in the, in the 90s, you even had uh, Bill Clinton saying the era of big government was over. Um, so it was about solutions coming from other places than the representatives and the politicians and the bureaucrats and the presidents and the rest of that. And then a couple of things happened. One, the, the dot-com bubble burst, or got, became a bubble, first of all, and the idealism turned into something else again. It became, the money was just, money was just too hot and, and, and flowing that you couldn't avoid it. And, um, and, and then the bubble burst and then 9-11 hit and um, shocked everything. And for the last 15 years, I think we've regressed into this idea that we need to, you know, find the saviors to help us do things. Um, and all we need to do is get the right people in there and the right things will happen. Um, that was something we were arguing against at the time. And I think it's still a valid argument to make. The question, what's the what's the counter argument then? I mean, or not well, counter but what should from, we what should we be doing instead of that? I think progress comes from individuals doing things. Like history is full of political activity, but progress is full of technology and science and literature and art and and other things that that uh, the state doesn't really do. And I think there's a tendency on the part of the of the intellectual class and the politicians and the and, and the state to try to keep the focus on them and make them seem like they're the most important people out there. But in fact, we have the power mm-hmm. and we have more power for working individually or rather uh, working in groups and working directly on the problems than if we try our best to, to, to move some mammoth institution that we have very little right. contact with. But the, but the bigger point is whether or not what, what kind of a spirit, how should we be looking toward the future? And I think the digital revolution that we talked about has occurred. We've won. We've made all sorts of progress. It's still happening. I think the networking will continue. The big 
thing has been to connect all these brains together. Three billion brains on the planet are now in communication with each other. That the, the most powerful, you know, parallel processing computer ever. Lots of things have already changed as a result of uh, big data, networks, computing, and all those people thinking together. That's the platform on which next revolutions are going to be built. And there are very big ones that are still um, submerged, that are still not being paid attention to. Among them, and this is one that my partner, Jane Metcalf, is working on in uh, Neo.life, which is the, you know, the neobiological revolution that's, that's happening, that's genetics and the discoveries about the human body and, and the application of these technologies to medical and health problems, health issues, or the improvement of the human race in general. We're just at the beginning of the hockey stick for that. Mm. However many, however much progress has been made in, in, in solving certain diseases and extending lifespan, quality of life and life and longevity are both things that are going to be improved radically in the next decades. And there, that revolution is just starting. And so the, there should be enormous excitement and enormous sense of possibility uh, like there was at the time for the digital revolution. So you're still an optimist. That's it's like so refreshing. You've, I was terrified that I was going to ask you that question. You're going to tell me that you know the world is going to shit. Excuse I, my language. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> you can't be an entrepreneur and not be an optimist. Yeah. So the Kickstarter you have coming out is for a novel. It's a, it's a book, but it's a fictional novel. It's not like a piece of reporting or journalism or nonfiction. Do you touch on some of these themes? Is that what the the novel is about? Sometimes you can tell more truth with fiction than you sure. can with, with nonfiction. Um, when I left Wired in 1998, I was immediately besieged by people saying I should write the story of Wired because it's kind of a cool story. Yeah. But meanwhile, that wasn't really the story I wanted. To, I just come out of that, getting back into that was not where I needed to go. And, and so I just let some time pass. I had two wonderful kids. I focused on them because I had the luxury to be able to do that. Then I got involved in, a, in other stuff, everything from real estate to starting a chocolate company. But along the way, I said, I don't want to write about Wired, but I do want to write about that moment, that, that spirit of the 90s, um, the optimism, energy, and, and the sense of risk of everybody putting their lives on the line and everything on the, their emotional and, and physical, in some cases, lives on the line in order to, to make something special happen. And, and so I thought – and, and, and you, you touched on it. It's like today there's such a downhead out there that I think there's a need to appreciate the excitement and energy of that moment. And so what I've tried to do is – capture that lightning and, and put it between pages and and give people access to to the to that utopianism and idealism energy just on the cusp of it becoming the dot-com bubble so the the utopianism becoming the orgy of the dot-com bubble and in that moment I think there are a lot of things to uh, to discover and what's the novel called it's called Change is Good. Change is Good. Which is the title of the – which was the cover of the last issue of Wired that I Oh, I didn't know I that. edited. Uh, you have some interesting work you're doing around how you're printing the book. Do you want to tell us about that about, a bit? Yeah. Um, I wanted to write about this revolutionary moment. And I got a good buddy. Um, his name is Eric Speakman. 
he doesn't want me to say it, but everybody knows he's a design god. He's got th- how many designers have three hundred thousand Twitter followers? He's won every single possible award. He's designed the typeface that we all know as a sub as the as the one that's become the dominant face following Helvetica, which is Meta. Uh, he's built two design companies, um, and recently he's become and he started out as a as a printer. He started as a typesetter in a print shop when he was eighteen, and now he's back to falling in love with printing. So I wrote a novel and I wanted to bring it to the world. And I thought about going to New York, but in, in normal publishing, like I had uh, thought about doing that with Wired before we did it as an entrepreneurial startup. And I just said, no, that wasn't the spirit of the times. It's not, it's, it, it doesn't really reflect how I've been doing things now. And so why don't I get together with Eric and see if we can print the book together, make the book together, get him to design my book, which would be a fantastic dream for me. And then let's see if we can bring it to the world, this spirit of working directly with Kickstarter. If Kickstarter had been around, the world would be a lot different. Uh, if it had been around in the 90s, a lot of, a lot of other things would have happened. But um, I appreciate everything about what Kickstarter is, that it enables people to reach customers and, and supporters directly. But for us, it's not about necessarily making a market. It's about making a movement in a way. Because So I have this idea about connecting to that movement of the 90s. He has an idea about starting a new movement. And what, he's lo- what he fell in love with is letterpress printing. And I started to describe this way back at the beginning um, about the linotype producing letters in lead that actually touch the paper. That's how everything was done for the longest time. And then along came Offset and completely displaced Letterpress as a, as a commercial medium for distributing um, material like books and, and newspapers. And from like a, a actual user interface perspective, it's a pretty different experience, right? It's a tactile versus non-tactile, like just for people who don't, aren't familiar with Letterpress. Well, if you yeah. touch Letterpress, it's, you, can, you can feel the words on the page and generally with Offset, you, you can't, right? Is that, exactly, yeah. precisely. I mean, Letterpress has made an, an, uh, a comeback in, in an artisan context. And so there are a lot of little printers out there now that have small presses and they produce business cards and wedding invitations and posters and other cool stuff. And it, you love it because it's got the it's got an emboss of the type in the paper. You can see it, the paper. It just feels special to you. And books aren't made that way anymore. Hardcover books that you get are all offset. And they're not really – so the type isn't really sharp and it isn't black. Oh, okay. That's just the process. It's not it's – not, you can literally – if you put a letterpress page and, a, and an – offset page uh, next to each other, one just screams at you as being sharp and the other one screams at you as being dull. Mm. And anyway, Eric Eric wanted to make um, letterpress printing on a commercial scale for books feasible again. And what has been holding, one of the things that's been holding it back is that letterpress can't deal with the uh, advances in digital typography and design tools that have been made in design and the rest of it um, the way offset can. You can go direct from screen to plate for offset and you put it on the offset and you'll get nice – you'll get easily – you can easily translate from one yeah. screen to the to the paper. Um, that hasn't been true with letterpress because you have to – the best you can do is go through a, a photo intermediary to produce a plate and then go on a press. So you've lost a generation of crisp and, uh, crispness, crispness in there. 
Eric has been spent has spent the last two years developing a laser cutter that'll produce a letterpress plate direct from screen, eliminating the intermediary. And this book is the first to come out using his new technology. So it's and the difference is, as I said, phenomenal. So I wanted to make the best book about this time and then have the best reading experience. And Eric is the best designer for books and is producing the book himself on his own press with a new technology he's developed to reinvent letterpress printing for the 21st century. Because now quality books can now be reproduced on letterpress in a way that they couldn't do before. And all those people who want to print, all those printers who have these old presses that they didn't know what to do with anymore, will now be able to produce high-quality books at commercial prices that people can appreciate. So if you're still going to read, and, I, and, I, and it's sort of ironic that I spent my, a good chunk of my life uh, advocating for digital, but I still believe that the best way to read long stories and digest complex ideas is to see them on paper. Yeah. And the page is alive with letterpress. It has that slight emboss. There's a shadow in the well of the impression that um, changes as light hits the page so that the page is almost alive as you're using it, as you're reading it. Um, it's physical, and we spend so much time in the immaterial uh, world, and it's sensual. It plays with light and yeah. the texture and, and materiality. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to argue with sort of every single part of the digital reading experience that until the second where you're reading, right? So the, the storing of the information, <laughs> right. the getting of the information, the sharing of it is just incredible these days. But right. you're actually sitting in that chair, that couch, that desk with the folded magazine versus the iPhone screen. I mean, it's, it's sort of no question that, at least for me, that the, 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 the magazine piece of paper is a better experience. Well, we've seen what's happened. I mean, digital has, has sort of come down to very small nuggets of emotion and and um, information, I wouldn't I hardly ever call it wisdom, that people digest or, or people ingest um, like junk food or something. Yeah. Um, some things need to be expressed in a longer form. Arguments can be – arguments need to be expressed over longer – over a longer form. Yeah. Um, stories need to be told over a longer form. And if you want to do that, if you want to have the best experience um, comprehending that longer form, print is still the way to do it. So it's a good segue into sort of my last question or thing I want to talk about, which is, you know, where do you see, where's Wired's place in the world today? And I mentioned at the top there that you had, um, I think you met with Nick Thompson recently. Right. He was the new editor-in-chief of Wired. Right. I might not, I'm not sure if I'm correct about this, but I think that, you know, Nick was the web editor at The New Yorker before. And people right. who know him and know what he did there know that he was a lot more than just the web editor. He was a huge force there. But he's he's sort of the first guy who is, comes from the internet that, uh, it was like the editor-in-chief of Wire, I think. And it's not to say that all the other editors before weren't extremely conversant with digital and all that, but this is somebody who, like, grew up from the time he started writing doing so on the web. Right. Um, and so I know you guys met – you met with him. How do you how do you see the challenge of what Wire should – especially given what you just sort of talked about, which is this push into shorter forms, smaller pieces, that kind of thing. How do you see Wired in the future? What was your advice to him? 
Um, I think it was an honor to, to meet with him. I really, um, I think he's a, a great guy. I mean, he's just a, a good person to, to hang out with. And he's also accomplished in a way that is not quite clear. I mean, you describe him as the web editor, but in fact, he was about creating a commercial component to the New Yorker on the web, which also at the same time supports the print component. Um, so I think he took the New Yorker into the 21st century when he was there on, in charge of its web operation. And at the same time, he appreciated the New Yorker for what it was as a print publication and, and, and that and, and helped them in a commercial way, basically creating a commercial component to the New Yorker on the web, which also at the same time supports the print component. So I think he took the New Yorker into the 21st century when he was there on, in charge of its web operation. And at the same time, he appreciated the New Yorker for what it was as a print publication and, and, and that and, and helped them in a commercial way uh, on the print side. How do you see the challenge in the future? Or how do you, how do you see – what's your advice to, to Wired? The future what, I, what, I've been, what I tried to tell um, Nicholas is that for all of the advances that we have – have seen for all of the uh, success that Wired has had, really we're still only at the bottom of the hockey stick. The revolution, all of the revolutions, the changes are still in front of us. And so Wired's role, what it was and what it can be in the future is still to bring that revolution to thoughtful people and help it, uh, help birth it uh, going forward. I, You know, I'm still that optimist. I think the the future's so bright, we got to wear shades. Louis Rosetto, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the Webby Podcast. Uh, I know for all the, the all the Wired readers out there and old schoolers that uh, we're so appreciative of, of you coming on today. Thanks, David. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much to Lewis for talking with me. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. The Kickstarter is change is good. There's about, depending on when you listen to this, 10 days left. I can't wait to get my copy. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Our producer is Sebastian Ade. Research and writing by Michael Charbonneau. Music is Straight West by Casket Club. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. Season two is in the making and is coming out next month. Thanks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.